0: Good morning, and welcome back, and it's great to see you. Great to see some new, new faces as well. Um, and, and women, thank you for the beautiful music, for getting us started with that and helping pave the way for our worship. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, your word is good and living and powerful, and I pray that you will help us to understand it better. As we study this morning, in the name of Jesus, we ask this thing. Amen. Open Doors, <clears throat> that is the nonprofit organization that serves. I'm going to move up here. Is this okay if I do this, Andrew? Um, Open Doors, the nonprofit organization that serves persecuted Christians worldwide, reports that every month 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 Churches or Christian properties are destroyed. 772 acts of violence, such as beatings, rapes, forced marriages, etc., are committed against Christians. That's monthly. Their website provides a world watch list where they rank the countries according to the severity of persecution that takes place there. Where does the United States rank on the list? We don't even make the color-coded map of the world. We don't even qualify for the label scarce persecution. Persecutions like that are not taking place here. This country has enjoyed unparalleled religious freedom. However... A recent survey by LifeWay Research found that in just two years, the number of Americans who think Christians are facing growing intolerance in the United States has drastically increased. The poll revealed a growing anxiety about the decline of religious freedom in the country. Now, why the increased anxiety? Why, why do you suppose that is? Well, perhaps it's because in recent years we've watched local businessmen lose a chance for a TV show on HGTV because of their Christian views. Or maybe it's because we've heard of pizza shops or florists or bakeries closing or being boycotted because their Christian views were discovered. First Liberty is a nonprofit organization and it compiled a report in 2016. In it, they claim the number of religious hostilities in the United States has doubled in the past three years. The survey describes cases of children being told they couldn't bring a Bible to school or to pray over their lunch. Valedictorians are told they cannot pray or speak the name of Jesus. It documented cases of people being fired, refused employment, fined for privately praying in the sight of others, and for wearing religious attire, and for sharing their faith without a permit. The organization contends that hostility toward religion is rising like floodwaters. In the days after the Orlando shooting massacre, several major newspapers ran articles blaming the incident on Christianity. A man got into his car, drove two hours to a Florida nightclub, opened fired while shouting Allah Akbar, called 911, 911, to pledge his allegiance to the Islamic State, and yet in the days that followed, Christianity was blamed for the hatred that resulted in the death of 49 people, particularly those Christians residing in the state of North Carolina, because we had just passed our infamous bathroom law. When Christians shared their condolences and prayers for the victims and their families, they were accused of hypocrisy, They were told, we don't want your crocodile tears. You are the ones promoting this. Now, here's the thing. When I was growing up, this was unheard of. Even when I was raising my children. When I was in high school, I might have been teased about certain things that I did and didn't do, but generally, my convictions were respected. People didn't always agree with me, but they at least viewed Christians as good for the society. They saw us as good. The world your children live in is very different. It's becoming more hostile. That raises the question, how is a Christian to deal with persecution and hostility? How is a Christian to deal with the growing hostility in our own state? How do you prepare your children for it? And not only that, what about other kinds of suffering? How is a Christian to deal with the everyday difficulties that are unrelated to the culture? Things like chronic illness or a difficult husband or the death of a loved one. How is a Christian to function in a world that is filled with trials and suffering? This morning we are going to be starting a new book. It is by Kay Daigle, and it is called Adorned with True Beauty. And often at Abide, we find ourselves doing uh, topical studies. But this semester, we are going to do a book study. And by book, I mean a book of the Bible. And um, one of the neat things about doing a book course is it gives us an opportunity to talk about some good Bible study techniques as we go and this is why in addition to a copy of your book we have printed out for you the entire book of first peter a lot of times um, when i really want to study a passage and i really want to dig in i will go to uh, and i'll make a copy of one of these you can download them on the internet and that way i've got something i can pull out my markers and i can mark my repeated words and i can make my scribbles and my lists on the side and put big question marks when I don't understand things. Now, usually when I'm preparing to teach, I, um, I try to read it over, over and over and over again. But this time as I was preparing, I thought, you know what, this is one of those books, I'm going to try to memorize this. And I was hoping to be done by today. I'm not, I'm, I'm still working on that. But I share that for a couple of reasons. First, um, I wish I had started doing this younger. You know, I wish I'd started doing this when I was your age. I get very sad when I think of all the Bible I could have hidden in my heart if I'd have started um, memorizing books of the Bible uh, younger. Um, the second reason I'm sharing this is because in the past I have st- I've tried to memorize in the NAS version. And so that is why, long story short, that is why you're getting the NAS version and why I'll be teaching out of it instead of the ESV. So... Um, that explains that. Now, one of your homework assignments was to read through the book, the whole book, in one sitting as if it were a letter, as if you were receiving a letter in the mail. And that's really a great assignment, especially when the book that you're studying was a letter. So um, that, was, that was a good first thing to do. The, the next thing I do after I read through it as if it were a letter is I, I break out two pencils. I break out a blue one and I break out a pink one. And I go through and I mark with my blue pencil every mention of the writer of the book. Anytime he's mentioned, you know, I'll put blue and any little tidbit that it says about him. And then I'm also marking the recipients, who his first readers were. I'll mark that in pink. Anytime their name comes up and anything, any little tidbit about them. Now, uh, I have a very clever system for this. I figure the writers of those New Testament letters are always men thus the uh, gender-appropriate blue pen. And the readers are, in many cases, not always, but they're usually written to a group of believers. So I think group of believers, bride of Christ, oh, pink pencil. So uh, that's, my, that's, my, um, that's my goal with that. But why would I do that? Why would I take the time to look through at everything I'm learning about the author and then look through and try to learn everything I can about the readers, those first recipients? Well, primarily, it's because it's going to help me understand the context of the letter. You see, if you've got a letter in the mail, who it's to and who it's from, that's very significant in how you would understand the letter. So here's the first point on your papers. It is number one, when studying the Bible, remember context rules. We always want to understand the Bible in its context. And this is review. Review. When I am um, working to put a New Testament epistle in its context, I like to start with a square like this, and I have it, on your, um, have it on your handouts. I like to think of it almost as sides of a fence. You could think of it as a frame. You could think of it as like maybe laying the foundation. And, and we want to set up some boundaries, so to speak, and, and set the book in its context. Now, one of the first things, and, and by the way, then, Part of the reason you do that is whenever you're trying to understand the book, especially when you get to the difficult passages, you want to almost imagine yourself standing in the center of that fence and taking into account the context that you have established. And you'll see what we mean here as we go. Now, first side. Oh, also, I want you to notice we have one frame inside a larger frame. That's because the book that you're studying is always going to fit In the context of the Bible as a whole, it's got to. All right, now, let's take a look. The first side of our fence I have on the top is A, and that's the author. When you're putting a book in its context, context, you want to establish who the author is. And uh, we're going to find out who that is in our first verse of 1 Peter. So let's read that. 1 Peter 1.1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. All right, who's the author? Peter. You can put that next to your blank there. And this is Peter the apostle. This is Peter the disciple that you read about all through the gospels in the book of Acts. He's the author. All right, now we also learn something else about context. We learn about the recipients in this. And he writes to, um, this is side B, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. Now, I didn't really leave you space on your paper for all of that. So for now, the short answer to that, you could write chosen. You could write believers. They're Christians. They happen to be scattered. And if you were to take out a map, you would see that all those regions are areas through Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. Okay, so that's A, B, let's move on to C. C, with your C side of the fence, this is where you wanna establish your historical setting. In other words, when was the book written? And is there anything from history that could help you in setting up the context of the book? Now, most uh, scholars will estimate the book was written between 60 and 64 AD. So you might wanna put that down there. That's somewhere in that range. Nero is the Roman emperor. And if you've ever studied anything about Nero or history, history describes him as a major nut job. He is crazy, wicked, evil ruler. Now, there's something else interesting about that time period. In, um, history records that in July of 64, the great fires of Rome burn, And Rome was a wooden city at the time, so it burned for days. But there was also something very suspicious about that fire. It was said that just as people would start to get the fire um, out, they would find men going around and rekindling the fire, or they would be found in opposite sides of the city starting starting another fire. And so um, people, the Romans, many believed that Nero had started the fire. And as you would expect, the people were devastated and homeless and angry angry at Nero, and so Nero needed to change the narrative, and so he needed a scapegoat, and so he began to blame and accuse a group that was already hated and unpopular, the Christians. They had been associated with Judaism, and they had also been seen as hostile to Roman culture. Nero said the trouble was because the Christians wouldn't worship the Roman gods, He said that Christians even teach that the world was to be destroyed by fire. So this was their doing. They were promoting this. This was their fault. And then historically, you see a major shift and turn to full-blown persecution of the saints. Everything intensifies from this point out. It's said that Nero would take Christians, dip them in tar, light them on fire, and use them as torches for his dinner parties. It said he would cover them in animal skins and feed them to the lions or dogs for sport. Both Peter and Paul would be martyred as a result of Nero. Now, when you're trying to date the book, the tricky part, there's some debate as to whether it was written before or after the fire. You can kind of see why that would be an ordeal. Does it take place before the full-blown persecution starts or does it take place during Well, there's a couple of things that we can know for sure from the text about some of the hostility that's taking place and those first recipients are experiencing at the time of the writing. So now how would we find those out? How would we find out what the recipients were dealing with? Hello, pink pencil. This is where it becomes very helpful. See, I've already got this marked out all about the recipients. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at all those places where I've marked in pink. And I'm not going to go through all of them today. I've kind of picked out a few of the um, ones that we'll find very helpful. So find on your papers or in your Bibles 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. We want to figure out what these first writers are experiencing. One six says this in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Okay, what do we know for sure? Peter is writing to people who are experiencing various trials. At this point, we don't know what they are, but we know they're distressing and they're coming in all varieties. All right, next, verse. let's go to chapter 2, verse 12. 2.12 says this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, what's going on here? What's happening to them? They're being slandered, okay? They're being slandered as evildoers. All right, let's go to the same chapter, verse 18. Verse 18 says this, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. All right, now skip to a couple of verses. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Okay, what are we finding out? Some of his readers were slaves, and they were slaves with cruel and unreasonable masters. Some of them were women married to difficult pagan husbands. All right, let's do two more. Chapter three, fourteen says this. but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Okay, he's writing to people who are suffering for doing the right things and they're being intimidated and it was troubling. Okay, one last one. Chapter 4 verse 3, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Okay, what's going on here? Well, some of these believers were Gentiles, Gentiles that used to like to drink and corrals and party. And then they became believers and quit, and their friends didn't like it. Their family and friends were surprised, and they didn't understand, hey, why aren't you going to the parties with us like you used to? Peter says they malign you. In other words, now they're insulting you. Now they're saying unkind things and being hurtful. They're saying blasphemous things all because these were new believers and they didn't want to party and do all the immoral stuff that they used to do before. I wonder if any of you can identify with that. Maybe you used to be immoral and cheat or get drunk and then you became a Christian and your life changed and now you've got old friends and family that are giving you a hard time or maybe you're married to an unbeliever. Or maybe you have a boss or people in your life that are unreasonable and making things difficult on you all because of your Christianity. And you find yourself thinking, I, I don't remember signing on for this. Am I doing something wrong? Or maybe you feel distressed because you feel like you just go from one trial to the next. Peter's going to have a lot to say about those things as we study. For now, here's what I want you to see that when Peter writes the book, full blown, intense, legal persecution that is probably on the horizon, probably brewing, hanging out there like a black cloud. And it's very possible Peter can see the writing on the wall. But at the time of the writing, the persecution was probably more of a social and cultural type. What we know is that his readers were being mocked, they were being slandered, insulted, and maligned, probably being pressured by masters or those in authority. They were being marginalized. And then if they weren't dealing with that, they were dealing with the regular distressing issues of life. Now, let's keep that in mind, and we're going to go back to that last side of the fence. So far, we've talked about the author and the recipients and the historical setting. Lastly, we want to determine what's the theme or the themes of the book. That's sort of going to help us put our book in context. We want to determine what was the intended purpose of the book. Why did the human author write it? We know it has uh, God as the author, but we know it also has a human author. And what is it that human author is addressing? What's the tone? As we're studying, we wanna determine why did he write this? What does he want us to know from what he's written? Now, how are we gonna figure that out? Well, a couple things. Uh, this is where you can go back and look at the various different repeated words that you've marked and you start to see some repetition and that's gonna help you. Also, your pink pencil is gonna help. Or pink, oh, sorry, blue, it's your blue pencil. Because sometimes the author is going to come right out and tell you what his reason is for writing. Okay, so I want, you to show, I want you to see that. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 10. 5, verse 10 says this. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Aha. He has just told you why he's written. He's just told you what his purpose is. That word exhorting in verse 12 means to encourage, to console, to comfort. So what's what's the tone of this book? Encouragement, compassion. What's his purpose for writing? To encourage, to encourage believers that are suffering to console believers that are distressed. He's gonna be a cheerleader in this book to encourage people that are feeling marginalized and minimized and alone. This book is going to be filled with compassion written to encourage believers to stand firm in the grace of God. Here's our, here's our next point. Number two, First Peter was written to encourage suffering believers to stand firm In the true grace of God. What we're going to see as we go through 1 Peter is that when Peter talks about the true grace of God, he is referring to salvation. Okay, salvation is the true grace of God. 1 Peter has a lot to say about salvation. It's going to be a repeated word, as is grace. Grace. And so, yes, we're going to have suffering and trials, but we're also going to see grace and, and salvation. Now, if you did your homework, you were told to read through the whole book of 1 Peter, and then you were to go back and spend some time on those first few verses. And so um, we're going to use our remaining time doing that. So let's go back. We're going to read those first few verses in chapter 1, if you'd find those. Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. that Peter hits us with about salvation and about God and about our identity as believers in these first few verses. And um, these are gonna be foundational to the book. We're gonna keep coming back here to these as we study. So here's what I want you to notice. Peter starts his book by describing these believers as aliens, they are scattered aliens. He's going to use that term again in chapter two. Peter wants them to understand and here's point 3 on your paper. We are aliens. That is the Greek word parapedimos. Persons, it means this, the meaning, persons on your papers, persons who belong to some other land and people who are temporarily residing with the people to whom they do not belong. That is your Greek definition. Listen, Peter could have called them any number of things. But remember why he's writing. Why is he writing? Somebody tell me. Encourage. He's writing to encourage. He wants them to stand strong, and so he refers to them as aliens. He's telling them, you are from a different land. I have a girlfriend And there was a time you would have looked at her life and thought that she had a very Ken and Barbie life. But she has recently been dealing with what I would call just a flood of difficulties. She's had a window of four years where she's just been hit, just over and over and over again with one trial after another. For my birthday, she bought bought me a plaque that says, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Peter calls his readers aliens and strangers. Why does he do that? Because the best is yet to come. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia wasn't their home. And you know what? Charlotte, North Carolina, isn't yours. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an alien, and the best is yet to come. Peter calls them aliens. He wants them to think like an alien. He wants them to think this is temporary. This is the stuff of aliens and strangers. He wants them to think eternally. He wants them to have this eternal spiritual perspective. Why? Because this isn't the prize. They're aliens and their hope is not in the land that they are passing through. In fact, I want you to look at verse 3, the end of verse 3. Said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Believers, you have been born again to a living hope. This past December, Michelle Obama was interviewed by Oprah concerning the election and her husband leaving the White House and the nation, and she said... That the nation is currently feeling, and I quote, what not having hope feels like. She said, Hope is a necessary concept. I mean, what else do you have if you don't have hope? What do you give your kids if you can't give them hope? Those are great questions. What else do you have if you don't? hope. Peter says, you have been born again to a living hope. Yes, you are aliens and strangers for now. And yes, you have sorrows and distressing times and trials while you are here, but you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me ask you, do you live like a woman with hope? How do people see it? Would others say that you live like a woman with hope? Maybe a better question would be, what is your hope in? How do people see that? What do people think that your hope is in? A new president? A Republican Congress? Maybe a Christian school? Or a new healthy diet? Or doctor? What is your hope in? You see, Peter is not going to tell his readers that they can have their best life now, or that if they pray really hard, they'll find the best parking spaces, and if they have faith, they'll they'll all be healthy and wealthy. He says something very different. He says, you you are aliens, and you have been born again to a living hope, to obtain an inheritance, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and won't fade away, protected by the very power of God. You see, the last thing that Peter wants to do is to imply that there is any hope found around here. He doesn't want to imply that your hope is in your circumstances or in your circumstances changing because the truth is they may not change. Your circumstances might not change they might not improve. Why? Because you're aliens, and you are not home yet, and the best is yet to come. Here's our next point, number four. We have hope. Our hope is not in earthly things, but in our inheritance being kept by the power of God. This next thing I have saved for last. Peter calls his believers chosen. In the Greek, it is actually the first word he writes after he states his name and apostleship. In the Greek, it reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, eklektos. It's put there for emphasis. The very first thing he says about Christians is chosen. Eklektos. He says, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He says, you were caused to be born again. Chosen, foreknowledge, caused. Those are election words. And part of the reason we didn't use, start with this book in the fall, I might add, Years ago, we studied the book of Ephesians, and one of the things that we talked about was election. And I, and I shared this story of how I was raised in a different denomination, and we just never talked about election. We would come to a verse like this, and we would keep reading like it, it really wasn't there, and so, or so it seemed. And um, I had Presbyterian friends, and we would talk about it. But it seemed like at my church, the attitude was um, kind of just like, keep on moving, nothing to see here. And so uh, we didn't talk about it. Well, I shared that story uh, at the time, and we had a visitor that day. And the visitor came up to me after class and said, I was involved in the, in the same denomination, or I am involved. And she says, we are told, do not talk about election. Don't talk about it. And she said, apparently, they, they felt like it was too controversial, too divisive, and so um, they, they just didn't talk about it. Well, um... We will not be using that Bible study method here today. Uh, We're actually going to, we are going to talk about it. Or at least try to understand what Peter's trying to communicate to us when he uses the word and when he uses this language. So he starts by calling them chosen. He says they were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. He says God has caused them to be saved to a living hope. Now, there's a lot about election that it's a mystery that we can't know. But there is one thing that we can know for sure, and that is that Peter did not write this to be controversial or cause division. Because we know why. Why did he write? To encourage. He's wanting to encourage us, to comfort and exhort us. So another little side note here. This is when you come to a passage with an issue like this, remember, we're going to get we're gonna position ourselves sort of in the center of our fence with the book in context. And we're going to try to understand what the author, human author is trying to tell us, okay? And there's one thing we can know for sure, and this is our next point. Number five, the election of believers is a truth intended to encourage believers, not discourage or cause division, controversy, or confusion. There's a lot that we cannot explain about election, but this we know for sure. Now, rather than try to explain the mysteries of election, which I cannot do, I want us to try to contemplate, why does Peter start with this? Why emphasize this? How would their election be an encouragement? How would this comfort them? Okay, well, for one thing, we're going to get inside of our fence, and we're going to start by uh, thinking who he was writing to. And remember, we said he's writing to people that are being maligned. He's writing to people that are slandered. He's writing to people whose friends and family are treating them like outcasts. So he's writing them to people that are being marginalized. All right, here's our next point. Number six, Peter emphasizes to his readers that while they may be rejected by men, they have been chosen by God. Now, let's talk a little bit about that word chosen. I want to give you a literal definition for the Greek word eklektos. It literally means called out ones, chosen out ones, picked out ones. The idea of eklektos is the one who have the ones who have been chosen for oneself, selected out of a larger number. Right now, the word foreknowledge, in the Greek, that is the word uh, prognosis, and it means having knowledge beforehand. Now, things get a little hairy with this one, because sometimes when people teach or explain the election and the way uh, God foresees. They will say that God looks into the future and he could foresee. He could see, aha, in the future one day she is going to believe in me. She is going to choose me. And so that's how sometimes they will explain the word foreknowledge. But we want to be careful about that. And here's our next point. Number seven, in this context, the choice and the foreknowledge are God's, not man's. Okay, according To Peter, God does the choosing. Now I want to ask you, why would God's choosing you be something that you needed to understand if you were suffering? How would understanding you were chosen better prepare you to suffer? Here's our next point, number eight. God's sovereignty in salvation emphasizes his sovereignty and power. And John Piper would add, allows for God to be God. Peter wants them, Peter wants to make perfectly clear that God was completely sovereign over their lives and that there was nothing random about their lives. Okay, he says God is powerful and sovereign over every aspect of your salvation. Notice, and I want you to see this in verse 2. We see God the Father's foreknowledge. We see the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying. And we see the Son and the shedding of blood. This is a perfect, beautiful picture of the triune God that is acting Active, active, active in your salvation. You see, this is not picturing a God that is far off in the distance, watching, waiting, twiddling his thumbs, wanting to know what, waiting to see what you choose. This is a God that is active, actively involved in your salvation, every aspect of it. All right, now here's our next point, number nine. No word more concisely emphasizes God's love, kindness, grace, mercy, and compassion than the word chosen. Peter understands that when you are suffering and dealing with hardship, it's easy to question God's love, isn't it? We think things like, if you loved me, if you cared for me, why why won't you give me this or why 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 am i experiencing that and so peter gives them a word that would immediately convey god's love and his kindness and his grace and his mercy he calls them chosen he says you have been chosen you have been set apart you have been picked out and set apart for what for grace and love One last thing that we wanna see about Peter's choice of the word chosen. You see, Peter is about to address the topic of suffering. I wonder if any of you are suffering. He's about to address persecution. He's about to address difficult marriages. He's about to um, write to people that are worried and anxious and dealing with all kinds of trials. People that not only have the typical problems that they used to have, but now they've got a new set of problems because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And what does he say to them? Right out of the gate, he calls them chosen. He wants them to understand that their relationship with God was not based on some weak hold that they had or some weak, wimpy grasp of God on their part. It was not dependent upon them. God was saying, chosen. Their relationship was based on his holding of them. His active, sovereign, powerful love, loving grip on them. You see, before he addresses anything else in this book, he is going to address his commitment to them. Because that's what election does. God is committed to your salvation, every aspect of it. Here's our final point. Number 10. Believers, be encouraged. The entire trinity is committed to your salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we, we praise you for your word, and I pray that you'll help us to take these truths and, and chew on them. H- have your Holy Spirit help us to understand it. Help us to apply them as we experience sufferings and, and distressing trials. Father, my prayer is that these women will just get a taste of how good your word is and how satisfying, and that it is living. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.